The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Decisions and Dilemmas in Prostate Cancer Management, Building on Progress to Advance Personalized Care Through Candid Conversations and Expert Clinical Consults. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GZF860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening and welcome to uh, uh, Decisions and Dilemmas in Prostate Cancer Management. Uh, I'm Rob Dreiser from the University of Virginia, and we'd like to thank uh, the Medical Learning Institute, Peerview, and the Prostate Conditions and Education Council for providing this session. So let's get started. Um, so 2022, um, Clinical States of Prostate Cancer, I want you to look at the reference, Cher et al. Urology 2000. I saw Dr. Cher earlier this morning. Um, this is not the way he published it originally, but he and his colleagues, I think, uh, were at the forefront of how we begin to think about prostate cancer as a heterogeneous disease. And again, you could modulate this uh, clinical states model in any way you want, and it's going to continue to evolve. But it goes back to his and his colleagues thinking about the disease and beginning to subset the disease. And increasingly, we're going to manage this disease and try to come up with ways to deal with the heterogeneity. There are clearly challenges as we evolve management. Um, and this is some data in a couple of buckets about what we're not doing. Uh, I'm not going to read through all this, but one of the challenges, and it came up uh, in discussions in the prostate cancer sessions yesterday, that when you look at real world data and just think about intensification in the context of hormone sensitive metastatic disease, in the US, we do a very poor job, and there are estimates that only 30 or 40% of patients are actually receiving intensified therapy, despite really compelling level one evidence that's about a decade old. So um, we have work to do. There are a lot of um, patients who are just not being managed with level one evidence, and part of the, the way to overcome that is just frankly education. So the prostate cancer, excuse me, the Prostate Conditions Education Council, or PCEC, is a group that leads in prostate advocacy. It's more than prostate cancer. Um, it's been around for a long time. You get a sense of their reach and um, the extent of views on their, on their websites. And we're going to hear more from them uh, throughout the program. So again, prostate cancer, when you think about solid tumors, is not only extremely heterogene uh, heterogeneous in terms of the disease state, but it's also managed very differently than other solid tumors. <clears throat> there are medical oncologists who practice in the community. There are academic urologic medical oncologists. We have community medical, excuse me, community urologists. We have urologists that practice in large urology group practices. Some of them have advanced prostate cancer clinics with, with significant sophistication, and we have our colleagues in radiation oncology, both in the academic setting and in the community setting. And there are some divergent differences in practice based on who's managing the patient based on their perspective and their training and experience. Remember, the hormone-sensitive or castration-sensitive disease doesn't always mean hormonal naive. There is an impact of the leftward movement of therapeutics, the intensification, moving a lot of therapies we used for MCRPC earlier. We're going to touch on a little bit about the impact of next-generation imaging tonight. Um, PSMA, PET-CT is here. 
uh, in the U.S., slower than, of course, the rest of the world, but now we're beginning to be impacted on what the implications of that are. Um, likely within a very short period of time, we're going to have an agent that's a therapeutic, a theranostic, that both imaging and therapy, issues of oligometastatic versus polymetastatic disease, the addition of local therapies to metastatic patients, and the significant impact of prostate cancer genomics. So this is how we're going to break things down. First, we have a case we're going to present. We'll touch on it in a bit. 60-year-old man seeks your input on management five years prior with a PSA of 12. He had a truss biopsy with a Gleason 7. He undergoes a prostatectomy. He's got Gleason 7, tertiary pattern 5, PT2, uh, biochemical failure relatively shortly thereafter, salvage RT when his PSA was 0.23. Three years ago, he had a solitary uh, MET that was biopsy-proven, and he got that radiated, and he got six months of ADT at the same time concurrent and then subsequent. He's asymptomatic now, but his PSA is 66. His ECOG is zero. He's a little anemic. His chemistries are fine. His T is 455. He has bone mets on imaging with CT scans. He also has a bone scan done, and it is abnormal, as you can all see. All right. I'm going to now ask my colleague, uh, Dr. Bears to sort of uh, provide us uh, an overview on the role of uh, metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. Dr. Beer. Thank you, Dr. Dreiser. It's great to be here with you and Dr. Barada, and I look forward to discussing this case further uh, as we go through some more relevant data. So when we think about therapeutic decision-making in patients with metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer, there are a number of, of uh, clinical factors that come into play um, as we make individual patient decisions. And in this slide, we tried to summarize some of those, those factors. Clearly, fitness for relevant therapies is a critical component, so fitness for chemotherapy, fitness for androgen receptor-targeted therapy, specifically for abiraterone as it relates to blood sugars, cardiac history, liver disease. Um, prior therapy can be a consideration that's more, of course, relevant to recurrent disease uh, than uh, for newly diagnosed metastatic disease. And occasionally we encounter patients that present um, in a manner that makes us consider uh, the possibility that they're not particularly AR-dependent. Poor PSA expression, for example, or presence of liver metastases uh, can be associated with a lower response rate to hormonal maneuvers. And then there's volume of disease, um, low volume and high volume. We'll discuss that a little bit more in the upcoming slides. Uh, but the evidence for uh, androgen receptor inhibitors and abiraterone is available across groups uh, of volume of disease. But um, for docetaxel, the data are more compelling uh, for high volume disease. So as we approach a patient and think about choosing a treatment plan, some of the things that obviously we might consider are laboratory tests evaluating PSA, hemoglobin, uh, red cells, uh, chemistries, liver function tests, electrolytes, kidney function, assessment of symptoms. Um, is there bone pain? Are there new or emerging or rapidly progressing symptoms? What's the patient's energy level? Uh, is there a history of medical conditions that might... Um, interfere or predispose a patient to side effects from one of the agents we're considering. 
And then uh, imaging results, typically in this case, uh, conventional imaging is the disease in lymph nodes, uh, bones, visceral organs, and especially in the liver. One of the issues in the field is the volume of disease, and there's a number of considerations here. You may have heard the term oligometastatic disease uh, thrown around, and it can be considered both with regard to the type of systemic therapy that we would recommend, and occasionally also uh, in considering lesion-directed uh, radiation therapy to metastatic lesions. And so you can see some of the evidence uh, that uh, is available that shows that uh, volume of disease matters. And, and so you can see in, in uh, the, the top panels, uh, low volume of disease and high volume of disease uh, and the probability of uh, CRPC-free survival or absence of the development of castration-resistant disease. Clearly, uh, much faster progression to CRPC with high volume disease. Location of disease matters. Uh, on the right-hand side, you can see a couple of different analyses that demonstrate, as we consistently have come to expect, uh, that patients with lymph node-only disease tend to do better, patients with liver metastases do worse, and patients with lung or bone metastases fall somewhere in between. And in the uh, classification and regression tree uh, that you can see here, uh, there is a look at uh, prostate cancer-specific survival in patients with a single metastasis versus multiple metastases, further subdivided by PSA doubling time. And you can see clearly very distinct groups um, uh, with regard to five-year prostate cancer-specific survival. Now, in, the, in this slide and the next, I wanted to briefly introduce you to the portfolio of clinical trials that have defined the optimal care for this patient, patient group. First, uh, a series of clinical trials that examined docetaxel chemotherapy. Two of these trials, Charted and Stampede, had adequate power to look at survival endpoints, and both of those clearly demonstrated the value of docetaxel in addition to hormonal therapy in metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. Since then, we've had a series of trials that have examined um, the next-generation hormonal agents with Latitude and Stampede examining abiraterone, Arches and Enzymet examining enzalutamide, and Titan examining apalutamide. And again, uh, all of these studies yielded positive results and provide evidence of support for doublet combinations in the initial management of metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. You can see in these uh, busy tables the detailed results. Those are here for your reference. We won't be going through them in detail in this talk. I did want to show a couple of examples and dig a little bit deeper in a couple of areas, so I wanted to show you the Phase three ARCHIS clinical trial. Uh, this was a, a study of enzalutamide or placebo in addition to androgen deprivation therapy for newly diagnosed metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. Patients were stratified by volume of disease and by uh, prior docetaxel therapy with um, uh, the endpoints of progression-free survival and overall survival. Recently, uh, at ESMO 2021, we saw the presentation of the overall survival results of these, this trial. 
that were not available with the initial reports that focused on progression-free survival. And you can see that treatment with combination therapy with enzalutamide and ADT yielded a significant improvement in overall survival. You can see the various landmarks at um, uh, 24, 36, and 48 months. Um, the median follow-up at the time of this analysis uh, is uh, 44 months, and the number of deaths were 154 in the combination arm and 202 in the single uh, agent ADT arm. So we recently heard the results of the PEACE-1 trial, one of the first trials to examine uh, triplet combinations. We do have some data on triplet combinations from prior studies. For example, ARCHES had a small fraction of patients who received prior docetaxel, and Enzymet had a significant proportion of patients who received docetaxel. Those trials didn't really yield supportive results for triplets, uh, but PEACE-1 provides us some new and important information in this regard. PEACE-1 was a four-arm trial uh, that examined the question of adding abiraterone acetate to the standard of care and also adding radiation therapy to the standard of care. And the standard of care evolved over the duration of this trial. Initially, hormonal therapy alone. Subsequently, hormonal therapy plus or minus docetaxel at the discretion of the treating physician. And finally, um, ADTN docetaxel was the standard standard of care arm in this study. This enabled a look at the role of abiraterone in patients who also received docetaxel. And these are the initial results um, of those analyses presented in 2021. So you can see that in the subset of patients who had de novo metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer uh, and who received docetaxel, um, Overall survival was improved uh, with the addition of abiraterone. And at the median, the improvement was from 4.7 years to 5.7 years with a hazard ratio of 0.82. So that's one of the, the first results that demonstrates that three drug combinations hold promise uh, when compared to two drug combinations, particularly when that two drug combination is that um, of docetaxel. Another trial uh, is, speaks to this question as well, and that's the Aerosense trial. The Aerosense trial looks at three drug combinations of ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide compared to um, ADT plus docetaxel plus placebo. Uh, the trial planned to randomize 1,300 patients um, to these uh, two treatment arms. Uh, and we heard yesterday that it met its primary endpoint of significantly increasing overall survival in patients with metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. And I look forward to further discussion of the impact of these results on practice with my colleagues today. Now, as we contemplate these multi-agent therapies, uh, I wanted to leave you with some thoughts about um, side effects and patient preferences. So, um, of course, um, we're all familiar with um, hot flashes, and fatigue, and loss of libido, and sexual toxicity of hormonal therapies. But as we intensify therapies with the addition of second agents, such as apalutamide, enzalutamide, and abiraterone, we also need to increasingly concern ourselves with hypertension, cardiovascular complications, back pain, sarcopenia, 
weight gain and others. So these are some of the considerations that come into play as we consider patient preferences with regard to initial management of castration-sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, and of course, patient preferences regarding the therapy regimens are important as well. Um, there are decisions about shorter courses of therapy with docetaxel where uh, the second agent is um, delivered over an 18-week period and uh, treatment is done and ADT alone is continued versus long-term therapy uh, with the hormonal agents. Some patients really prefer not to take pills daily. Other patients, of course, have strongly held views about chemotherapy. The perceived as well as actual impacts on quality of life are important as, of course, are costs of therapy and economic consideration. We do now, however, have compelling level one evidence that nearly all patients with metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer should be receiving combination therapy, um, at least with doublets of chemotherapy and hormonal agents, and in some cases, perhaps triplet combinations. Thank you very much for this opportunity to have this discussion. I'd like to pass the baton back to Dr. Dreiser. Thank you, Dr. Beer. Um, so let's remind ourselves that um, despite uh, what Dr. Beer just presented, which is really compelling evidence, and we saw more yesterday, that again, ADT intensification is really underutilized in real-world practice. This data comes from uh, a population-based study within the VA system, and it showed a uh, relatively low uptake of any of the novel ARs or docetaxel. And as we all know, the VA system is actually a relatively good place to look because it is, in a sense, real world. It is, uh, for the most part, um, as it is not an economic issue, it's a matter of being offered a therapy. So we have challenges to work through. So let's go back to Mr. B. This is a 60-year-old guy, remember, who had biochemical failure, got salvage radiotherapy with six months of ADT, develops what on conventional imaging, conventional imaging appears to be a solitary bone met, gets, gets it biopsied, gets it radiated, um, has a, he gets the ADT in this context, not in the biochemical failure setting. He's asymptomatic with a PSA of 66. Um, bone um, CTs show bone mets, and the bone scan shows widely metastatic disease. So before we talk about this case, uh, Dr. Beer, yes. that gentleman with the uh, oligometastatic disease that got, that got uh, radiated and got six months of hormones, now he's got, you saw that bone scan, pretty extensive disease, but he's relatively asymptomatic. Uh, so what's up? And his T is recovered. Sure. Sure. So, you, you know, when you think about uh, a patient presenting with metastatic disease, um, I think there are two factors that drive uh, prognosis and treatment choices from the disease perspective. One is, is this de novo disease, newly diagnosed initial presentation of metastatic disease, or is it recurrent? In this case, the patient's got recurrent disease. And the other is the volume of disease, high or low volume. There's a couple different definitions. I use a charted one. This patient clearly has high volume, but recurrent disease. So recurrent is favorable, high volume is unfavorable. He falls kind of in the middle uh, of uh, the four quadrant prognosis uh, diagram, if you will. I think in this setting, uh, you know, he clearly um, 
should consider uh, combination therapy, as we've discussed, the data are really, really compelling. And which one to choose really ends up being a, a question of comorbidities and patient preference, physician preference. And I don't know if you want me to dig into the triplet discussion at this point, or if you want to um, take that a little bit later. Well, I, you know, I think we can touch on it just briefly. I mean, uh, the uh, piece one data, of course, is de novo presentation. And as we saw with Arison's yesterday, at least at the time of the presentation, my recollection, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, was 90-something percent were de novo right. in that presentation. So, again, it's another de novo setting. So one could argue potentially that neither of these studies speak to this gentleman. What, what's your thoughts about that? That's right. F fully agree. A great presentation, Dr. Beer, by the way. And, uh, yeah, no, I fully agree with Dr. Beer's comments. I think, you know, in, this, in the context of recurrent high-volume disease, I think it would be appropriate to consider triple therapy, uh, although we cannot, you know, assume all patients enrolling PS1 and, and Aerosense actually would, we would use that data to uh, justify doing, um, you know, dosi. Uh, with dorolutamide or, or dosi follow, you know, in abiraterone, right, in, in combination with, with ADT. Um, I, I would argue in a lot of scenarios, a lot of us, a lot of us would still consider uh, novel hormonal therapy in addition to ADT, right? Thinking of what Dr. Beer just said regarding recurrent disease and not being de novo, the fact that the patient does not have visual disease, the fact that the patient, you know, uh, doesn't have symptoms, right? Um, and so in that setting, you know, whether you, you pick abiraterone or enzalutamide or apalutamide, all of them, would all improve clinical outcomes would be reasonable options, in my opinion, yeah. All right, let's move on. This is a non-metastatic setting. Mr. G, 62 years, four years out from a radical prostatectomy for a T3B, Gleason uh, grade group four disease. He's got right seminal vesicle and perineural invasion, negative surgical margins. His initial PSA was 9.2. A year later, he gets salvage radiotherapy with six months of ADT. You see his PSA at time of treatment. Now his PSA is 1.25. It's up from a nadir of undetectable. He's got castrate levels of T, ECOG zero, no real comorbidities. His conventional imaging are unremarkable. So with that, I'm going to ask Dr. Barada to talk to us about uh, issues for castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Dreiser. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you all for being here with us. Uh, um, so we're going to change gears here a little bit. Uh, so we're going to move from the metastatic hormone sensitive space or castration-naive space to the non-metastatic space, CRPC, if you will. And some of you might be familiar with this data from Dr. Smith um, that basically shows this is actually a, a kind of a subgroup analysis of a, a trial that took patients, over 200 patients, with non-metastatic castration-resistant disease defined by conventional scans. So rising PSA, no disease in CT and bone scan, and over 200 patients. As you can see in this slide, represented on the left, uh, you know, absolute numbers of PSA, and then on the right, the doubling time of PSA. So the higher PSA and the shorter doubling time uh, are associated with, with progressive disease into new meds, right? And now we know that that endpoint, if you will, is metastasis-free survival, right? Uh, is the time when you do actually develop uh, metastatic disease. So this is a good reminder, and it's actually the backbone of what I'm actually going to show you next, that is a number of phase three trials, three of them, right? All of them with a very similar design, all phase three, combined with or uh, comparing 
anti-androgens, um, you know, Prosper uh, 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 study enzalutamide, Spartan study epilutamide, and then Aramis study dorolutamide, all against placebo in this patient population of non-metastatic CRPC that was defined with a PSA above two, with a doubling time of uh, less than, uh, fewer than 10 months, right? So this is not all the patients we see um, in clinic, but definitely those where, you know, uh, as I showed you before, with a moving uh, uh, PSA in short uh, uh, doubling time. So, and, you know, the data in terms of efficacy seems remarkably similar, right? Um, in other words, if you bring an antiandrogen in addition to castration, you're able to significantly prolong time to disease in the scans, or in other words, uh, you significantly prolonged the primary endpoint, which was metastasis-free survival. There was a, a lot of conversations around that endpoint, uh, you know, whether or not it would predict uh, improvement in overall survival. So, um, you know, whether or not it was a surrogate for OS, but as you can see here, a significant, uh, you know, risk reduction. And uh, we're talking roughly, you know, about, uh, it goes from 14 to 18 months or so, where you expect to be on hormones until you develop disease in the scans, to close to 40 months or so, if you bring a novel antiandrogen, right? And that was, as I said, all these landed in New England, all three New England papers. And then what was nice about it is actually had the chance, the opportunity to confirm the translation of MFS, metastasis survival, into OS. And voila, we have that data here as well. We can see a pretty similar data as well in terms of overall survival with the risk reduction, you know, around 20 to 30%, if you will, uh, favoring the combination of uh, uh, an antiandrogen with, with ADT. And this became, um, you know, standard of care for patients uh, who presented with non-metastatic CRPC, um, you know, and uh, again, uh, we usually think of this for, for, for folks with a PSA that's moving quickly, doubling time less than 10 months, PSA over two. Um, and so, you know, we have different uh, agents. Uh, there are some nuances in terms of uh, safety profile. Um, you know, I should have said that quality of life seems to be is preserved with, with treatment intensification in this scenario, which is another reason for us to consider it. Um, and um, in, in, in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, efficacy, on one hand, as I said, we have prolongation of MF, uh, metastasis survival, you have uh, uh, OS uh, advantage as well, and then the quality of life. However, you know, there are side effects that are uh, more or less common, and we should uh, pay attention to it. Those include things like fatigue, uh, you know, hypertension, falls and fractures, um, and fractures, and for that, we, we kind of have a few algorithms we use in clinical practice, right, um, when, we, when we are actually considering bringing an anti-energy in that scenario. Um, and with that said, I think uh, uh, I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Yeah. Dreiser. So uh, we can take uh, this opportunity, you know, again, PSMA PET-CT um, was sort of commercially available uh, outside of the UCSF and the UCLA area, sort of in the fall of last year with the fluoride agent. Um, and again, our colleagues in the rest of the world have been using PSMA PET-CT for some time. So for us, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge, right? Um, one of the things, and we'll talk about it because we've got questions from the audience and, you know, there are other issues, is that, you know, every one of the trials that you'll hear about tonight, that you've seen before, your practice um, philosophy was garnered from clinical trials that use conventional imaging. Not a single study, not, not a single drug is approved on the basis of next generation imaging that we use. So every therapy we do is gonna be impacted by moving 
to using a potentially a more sensitive um, issue. So earlier detection by using more sensitive assays may not mean that earlier therapeutic intervention is appropriate or beneficial. You know, more is not always better, early is not always good as later. Um, there's the concern of both undertreatment and overtreatment, right? Patients with high-risk disease who may receive curative intent radiotherapy with um, ADT might have different therapies if you see what seem to be nodes above the bifurcation. Um, so for the next several years, we're going to be in this sort of mixed world where most of the data that we have, including even the data that was shown within the last day, came from conventional imaging. But we now have the opportunity to use more sophisticated imaging. And it may get even more confusing, right? There's an anticipation, uh, and we'll talk about PSMA lutetium 617, which may be approved here in a relatively short period of time, and it may have a companion diagnostic, and it may require that the label for um, PSMA PET change to include MCRPC patients. So these are just some of the high-level issues that we need to think about. So back to this gentleman. Um, you know, high-risk disease, Gleason 8 disease, he winds up uh, having biochemical failure, gets salvage radiotherapy with six months of ADT, um, now has biochemical progression, he's castrate, he's asymptomatic, and conventional imaging is without evidence of disease. Dr. Beer, he is sitting with you, wherever you are, and he wants to know what you want him to do. Well, I think, uh, you know, in this setting, uh, the, uh, the drugs that are approved for treatment are, are based on um, patients that are relatively higher than average risk of progressing to um, metastatic disease. So those are patients with PSA doubling time of less than 10 months. I had a hard time calculating that doubling time on the basis of the data that was on, on that slide. That was intentional, Dr. Beer. I didn't want you getting into the weeds, but that's a very good point. <laughs> Now, let, let me ask you something. It, so let's just assume for the sake of discussion, his PSA doubling time was 9.5 months. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, leave it to me to get into the weeds, despite your intentions. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I think that's a patient where we would be discussing the, uh, the prognosis and the risks and benefits of intervening. Now, I think where, where you're headed with this case is, would we get a more sensitive imaging study and what we do with the results? So I'd be curious if if that was decided to be done in this case and, and see what we see. So um, th this, th this case was a real dude, but this predates the ability. But let me ask you something. So let's, I forget how old, I didn't make a Medicare age, but let's assume that either he's <laughs> Medicare age or you, your carrier of choice is not gonna hassle you. Do you get a PSMA pet in this guy? He's healthy, he's 66 years old. Um, he's smart enough to know what the issues are, but just smart enough to know to get himself into trouble. So he's looking at you and saying, what should I be doing here? So instead of 62, he's 66. So do you do, you do a, a PSMA pet? You know, as you know, there's, uh, there's very little evidence as to what to do with the result of that. I mean, there is a temptation to consider lesion-directed interventions in people who have uh, one, two, or three, you know, a very limited number of lesions in the hope of delaying the need for um, more toxic systemic interventions. Uh, the evidence base for that in the non-metastatic castrate resistant setting is nearly non-existent. 
So I, I, I occasionally have gotten that imaging. That would be an honest answer, but it's not part of my routine practice in Dr. this setting at this time. Dr. Barada, what, yeah. what, what's your approach? Yeah, great comment. I'd just like to remind the audience, right, when I think of novel imaging, and I'm thinking PSMA, right, is, I guess, the best scan in the world right now in terms of sensitivity, you know, we usually expect about, with PSA above one or one to two, the chances of seeing disease are pretty damn high. It was around 80% if we want to quote a number. And PSA above two is actually studies uh, showing that actually the chance of seeing disease once PSA passes two is actually close to 100%. It's 90 plus percent, right? So I guess, you know, to Dr. Beer's point, this patient has not achieved, you know, PSA of two. So if you want to be purists, we would probably hold tight a little bit longer until we do it. Um, it's very hard to, someone comes to us and say, Doc, do the best thing in the world for you, for me, whatever it's available. It's hard to go around that. So what I probably would do is, if I were to get a PSMA scan on him, have a, have a good chance that I'm going to see disease, that's probably going to help me, first of all, discuss with him that he's going to embark on subsequent therapy. If I see metastatic disease, which is a different discussion, what do I do? I would still feel comfortable to use any of the phase three data that I show to bring an anti-androgen because it's still clean in per conventional scans. Um, but I, I don't see the need right now. I think we're talking about a, month, a matter of months, right? Because this PSA is going to be, you know, up, above two in a short period of time, and the doubling time is going to tendency, you know, going to get shorter over time if we don't do anything about it in this setting. So I think we're talking about a couple of months. So if we order PSMA scan, get the results back, I, I likely is going to, we, he's going to get disease and we will have to treatment intensify this, this patient. So let me ask you about this um, sort of modulation. You actually now have his, so same PSA total, but his PSA doubling time is 18 months. Right? He just comes to you, you're seeing him, right. he's bringing this data, you calculate his doubling time, it's 18 months, right. with the last three values. You got three values over about nine months, right? So maybe it's a reasonable uh, doubling time to sort of look at. Does that, does that change whether or not you use next generation imaging? Does it impact on your discussion about intervention? I'll ask Dr. Barada first and then I'll come back to Dr. Beer. Sure, you know, so if we want to, you know, believe the data there is, is not great, as Dr. Beer alluded to, you know, it gets, um, we're not as in a rush as much as in a different scenario. Um, you know, we know it's not curative, number one. Number two, I, I would argue that what would pull the trigger, in my opinion, to actually do something about the patient is if I'm ready to treat him. If not ready to treat him right away, right, because uh, we are expected to see disease. So if we're not treating right away and we really want to meet the criteria that we have in that scenario, perhaps we should wait a bit longer. And I think to, to doing that is safe. Tom? Yeah, I think this is where um, really an honest discussion with the patient becomes really important because, you know, I, um, the, the human desire to know where the PSA is coming from is great. Uh, every one of my patients says, is there anything we can do to figure out where it's coming from? So it gets to be pretty tough to say, well, yeah, there is, but we won't do it. Um, but I, I do think that you know, the medical and scientific evidence suggests that it's really not worth doing in this setting. And where I land with, with a lot of my patients is, is a, a long discussion about the fact that taking care of prostate cancer is running a marathon, not a sprint. We're, we're going for the long term. We're, we're going to do everything that we need to do along the way, but doing it right away is not necessarily yeah, I think uh, the phrase I use is that it's not a race to the next treatment. Uh, yeah. We're not anxious to get there. All right, so let's move on. All right, so you didn't order the scan, Dr. Beer. It was hoisted upon you, and he brings it with him. 
and now you've got this. So what's up? Tell me, I, I, you know, I, I, I think um, the, the question really is, would lesion-directed therapy make a clinical difference for this patient? Would uh, lesion-directed clinical therapy make a difference for this patient, Dr. Beer? I think in the, you know, in the hormone-naive setting, there have been several phase two trials that have looked at response and um, potential delay in implementation of hormonal therapy, and there is some, you know, some phase two level evidence there. But in the castration-resistant setting, I, I think there's precious little data to guide us here. So, but you use systemic, you're going to add systemic therapy, right? Well, I think if it's, if it's nine months and you've got a couple lesions, I think you have a case to start systemic therapy. If I may just add a comment. You may. Oh, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, what I was going to say is, if this patient continues to have negative conventional scans, yeah. it's not rare that we actually go to our friends from radiation oncology. If we're convinced yeah. that we're going to radiate it, which to Dr. Beer's point, also not convinced. Did you just convinced. suggest that you're also going to get conventional imaging after the PET? No, no, no. no. What I'm right. saying is, this patient came with a PET because he really wanted to know, right? And the doctor that he saw didn't get the PET, and so he got a PSMA scan elsewhere, but he got conventional scans with us, right? And so at least that was my talk. Um, okay. And so, <laughs> so I get to choose. Right, so if enough. you have normal scans, bone in CT, and then you have a positive PSMA with a small node that you see an uptake there and then a small bone that does not, is not seen in the conventional scans, actually a lot of times, at least I get that feedback from friends from radiation oncology, they have, have a hard time uh, treating uh, uptakes and not real uh, lesions, if you will, right? And so that would speak, I guess, against uh, uh, local therapy, in addition to what Dr. Beer commented, which but you I, would I use, agree. But you would start him on systemic therapy? If he meets criteria for, for, for perspartan or prosper or amis, I would... So if his doubling time was 18 months, he's got he those two lesions. Right. Right? Well, actually, he, it's FDA approved, right? The, correct. the approval doesn't it speak doesn't to the specify. doubling time, right? That's correct. So but are you treating at 18 months? So, so my answer is no, because yeah. my, 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 uh, uh, my sentence to patients is, this is not a, a sprint, it's a marathon, which is very similar to what you both said. Yeah. So right. I wouldn't. I probably okay. would watch I mean, these, look, these are, these are you know, real-life dilemmas. Just to remind us that the Prostate Conditions Education Council has lots of resources for clinicians and caregivers, and you see them listed. Um, well, they have an interesting video for us to watch now that sort of gives us a sense on a patient's perspective of a, a prostate cancer journey. So let's uh, take a look at that. My name is Tom Remenick. I am a uh, prostate cancer patient. Um, I have been uh, diagnosed uh, with prostate cancer at a somewhat early age. I was uh, 54 uh, at the time. I'm currently 65. So I have been with prostate cancer for 11 years now. There are uh, many resources uh, that uh, help me in my education uh, of prostate cancer uh, disease and treatment. Uh, there is a lot of uh, material that is out there, but it is uh, somewhat of a struggle to integrate it all together and know exactly where, where to go uh, for some of those, for some of that information. A lot of it can be extremely technical and takes a long time to uh, sort through some of the technical jargon uh, that's there. Um, but there are, uh, there are many places that uh, information can be obtained. And I will identify that uh, PCEC uh, is one of those locations 
that does have uh, very good uh, resources that they identify. It talks about the uh, prostate cancer disease itself and also some of the treatment options. One nice thing I like about uh, PCEC website is that it doesn't uh, talk down to you. It has enough detail in there to give a person that's somewhat educated on the disease even more uh, information, yet uh, it is not so deep that you have to go get your medical dictionary and read what some of the words are. So they actually have a very nice uh, format associated with that. Physicians have an important uh, role, uh, obviously, not just in the, in the treatment of the disease itself, but also helping the patient uh, with uh, education and understanding uh, the disease itself and the nuances of that disease. But there are uh, a lot of resources that are out there and it is very, uh, sometimes very difficult to find them, or if you do find them, to cull through that. It is enormously time-consuming. Uh, I frequently feel if the physician could narrow down some of the uh, resources that uh, are available to the patient, that that would be tremendously helpful uh, to the patient. Thank you again. Just a reminder of the resources available. So this is another case, this is Mr. T. He's 71 and he shows up in your clinic uh, nine years prior with a PSA of 8.8, trust biopsy for a T1C, uh, Gleason 8 with a grade group 4, negative conventional imaging. Um, he is treated with curative intent with external beam radiation therapy and ADT. Um, apparently it was planned for two years, but somehow it just never stopped. So uh, he shows up, um, he's uh, free of overt prostate cancer disease-related symptoms, but he certainly has his share of ADT-related issues. His most recent PSA is 8.6, and using his last three values, his PSA doubling time is about four and a half months. He's castrate, he's anemic, his liver chemistries are okay. He has a germline BRCA2 mutation present when you assess it, and because you can, or because somebody did, you get a PSMA PET. And he has evidence of both bone and soft tissue metastases. So we're going to come back to that case, but before we do, Dr. Barada. Thank you so much once again. All right, so we're going to change gears a little bit to metastatic CRPC. We're going to get a brief overview of you know, some of the studies that I, we think it was relevant to share uh, tonight. And the fir first of them actually is to highlight uh, cytotoxic chemotherapy, right? It's actually, CARD was a very interesting European study, um, you know, uh, presented a couple of years ago now, and, and basically took patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who progressed within a year on, on a prior uh, novel hormonal therapy, uh, you know, uh, before or after docetaxel. So in other words, these patients have seen docetaxel and have seen one of the oral agents, abiraterone or enzalutamide, and um, it basically took about 250 so patients, randomized them one-to-one -to, -one to either cabazitaxel, uh, standard dose, or dealer's choice of abiorenza, um, whatever the patient did not receive previously. Primary endpoint, uh, radiographic uh, progression-free survival. Uh, secondary endpoints included overall survival, right? On the left side, on the right side of, of the screen, you, you'll see basically the primary and secondary endpoint. It's a positive study favoring cabazitaxel-based chemo uh, compared with uh, the oral agent uh, of choice. 
In this case, we're talking about a median PFS around eight months for cabazitaxel versus 3.7 months for, for the oral agent, and that translated in a significant um, OS advantage, favoring also cabazitaxel. So in other words, it prolonged a PFS, it prolonged overall survival. Um, this data to me is, is important because you know, it, it revisits the concept that chemotherapy does play a role in the management of patients with metastatic disease. So in this precise trial, uh, this is a very interesting trial in two uh, steps or two phases, if you will. So the first phase, patients embarked on enzalutamide at standard dose, and as long as they continue on ENZA more than 12 weeks, um, at the point of confirmed progression, disease progression, which was basically was defined by either serologic or radiographic progression, so either PSA of scans, um, they basically randomize to uh, a combination of enzo, so you keep enzalutamide and you bring docetaxel on board, uh, standard dose, or you, you offer um, you know, docetaxel uh, uh, with prednisone and placebo. So in other words, this study tried to or investigate if there's a role to maintaining a patient who's progressing by scans or PSA on ENZA and bring docetaxel prednisone on board, versus uh, switch him to uh, dostoxypred, right? And, you know, we saw the data, it was statistically significant. Uh, however, you know, the difference in terms of uh, uh, PFS here was about a month or so. So, um, so it did meet the primary endpoint, uh, yet we don't see a difference uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, gives a nice separation of the curves. Uh, as I said, it's about a month here uh, in terms of uh, time to, uh, in terms of PFS. Um, a, a word, as Dr. Dreiser alluded to, we have a word here on, um, you know, uh, PSMA-based therapies. Perhaps lutetium PSMA is the one uh, leading uh, the efforts. Well, I think we might have others to come, but in essence, the way I explain this to patients, at least, is, you know, is we have a target, a very good target. PSMA means prostate-specific membrane antigen. It's overexpressed in prostate cancer cells. It's overexpressed in most of the cases, you know, the data quotes close to 90% or so. Um, and then you have a radioligand that releases radiation. So the way it works is it gets incorporated within the cell and that radioligand, uh, you know, kills the, those, that cell. In this case, we're using a, a better particle. So as you, uh, some of you might be very familiar with this data, this is the phase three trial uh, called VISION. Um, vision trial was uh, as an experience, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, patients were flying all over the, the country um, and actually from other places as well in the world to be enrolled in this particular study. This study enrolled patients who were heavily treated because it required one, no more than two, uh, taxane-based chemo, one, no more than two, um, oral, novel hormonal therapies, and they were basically randomized two to one, favoring the lutetium arm to supportive care plus minus lutetium. So two to one, best supportive care plus lutetium versus best supportive care. And uh, as you can see here, you got an improvement of clinical outcomes, overall survival on the left, improved with the addition of lutetium PSMA uh, versus uh, best supportive care. And then on the right side, you also see an improvement in terms of progression-free survival. This data is known, is actually published and presented. I should say that quality of life data is, um, is favorable as well, is very, is very good indeed. And I should just add a highlight from this meeting, um, a data presented uh, to um, a, the safety analysis really that look into the uh, 
uh, the exposure of these patients on lutetium PSMA and what was the safety signal compared with uh, the control. And if you, if knowing that patients on lutetium stay on therapy almost, you know, three times longer, if you will, or more, um, when you adjust, when you do that exposure adjust analysis, you'll see that, that it seems, um, um, you know, it's actually very comparable and we didn't find significant differences there. So, uh, as Dr. Dreiser mentioned, um, he's under uh, FDA priority review. It was filed six months ago, so we do expect news uh, soon. Um, this is another trial that I actually like a lot, and this is a academic phase two, mainly Australian study, that is called Therapy. And this phase three trial, what he did is, he asked the question, you know, so accepting the fact that lutetium is an active agent for patients with advanced disease, the question is, how does he behave against an active agent like abazitaxel? So in essence, that's the, that's the therapy trial. We took patients that got prior therapy with docetaxel, uh, no prior second uh, uh, generation or novel hormonal therapy, and they were randomized, 200 patients randomized to either lutetium monotherapy or cabazitaxel, right? The trial did meet, uh, it is positive for uh, progression-free survival, um, uh, you know, with, with, a, with a risk reduction of about 37%, but it's kind of interesting, I think, to look at the Kaplan-Myers, right? Because actually the median uh, PFS is about 5.1 in both arms, which means half of the patients did about the same in either arm. Right? What is interesting, though, I think, is when we look at the survival curve here, um, you see these durable responders right, uh, represented here on the blue line, and that would translate into a, you know, an advantage and then translate into an other ratio um, that, um, that is positive favoring uh, lutetium compared with cabazitaxel. So, um, so this is very interesting data. I don't think we have a slide about quality of life, but also the quality of life of lutetium was very favorable comparing with cabazitaxel. So to me, it's, 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 it's a lot of lessons that we can take out of, of this trial. Um, and now, you know, moving a little bit further, I mean, of course, I think this, this meeting, you know, has been heavy on genomics, the importance of genetic testing and what can we do with it, right? So, you know, so um, uh, genetic testing is really important uh, on twofold, right? One is how we explain patients. They come to us and we basically say, listen, we're going to do two types of testing. We test, we're going to test you, the genes you were born with. Uh, that's called germline testing. And then we're also going to test a tumor known as somatic testing. And the reason why we do that is uh, represented in this slide. Among other things you can find, right, you will, you will, expect, uh, you will expect in terms of DNA repair gene defects, uh, and, you know, uh, you do expect about 12% or so. This is data from Dr. Pritchard. 12% um, of the times you will find uh, pathogenic or likely pathogenic alterations uh, at the germline level, meaning you were born with. Um, in addition to that, you expect about 20 or so percent of alterations, pathogenic alterations in the tumor. So if you test one, you're likely to miss some of those alterations that have treatment implications, right? And here we're just focusing on uh, DNA repair gene defects because, you know, the story we're going to tell in the next couple of slides is about the PARP inhibition, right? So, so PARP inhibitors have been explored in, in other areas in, in solid tumor world. Actually, we are a little bit behind our friends, colleagues who treat breast cancer, treat ovarian cancer, if you will. We take advantage from a problem um, in, in, at the genomic level that basically leads to uh, inability to fix the mistakes in the homologous recombination uh, machinery, if you will. So we take advantage from that, from blocking the PARP that has the, that responsibility. We, of course, we have trials we talked extensively, you know, this meeting, we had profound phase three trial 
that basically showed us that after one hormonal therapy in the CRPC setting, offering Olaparib um, improves all clinical outcomes compared with dealer choice of an, another a second uh, oral agent. And also, we have a proof of concept phase two trial post chemotherapy in the CRPC setting with Rucaparib, right? And both are FDA approved. Olaparib has um, you know, regular approval. Rucaparib has kind of a, a breakthrough designation as an approval, but it's pending results of phase three active PARP inhibitors, um, and the good news in addition to that is actually more coming our way, right? So here's really quickly just to, uh, just to uh, remind us that we now have the publications from both Galahad and Talapro. So Galahad uh, tested, um, you know, Neuraparib um, here, uh, Talapro tested another uh, PARP called uh, Talozaparib. So, uh, as you can see here, I think what's the teaching lesson from these studies, among other things, is actually you're going to see the breakdown of the response, you know, actually, you know, radiographic PFS here, but the breakdown of the activity by uh, uh, DNA uh, defect, right? And as you can see here, BRCA patients seem to be doing the best. Or in other words, the BRCA seems to provide a strong you know, predictive value compared with other genomic alterations within the same group. And the reason why that's important is because when we start this conversation, right, about PARP inhibition, we don't, we didn't necessarily knew that, right? We, you know, we, so we, we kind of get them in the same group, but then we start learning more about the predictive value of every individual, um, you know, genomic alterations, and we now know more about it. BRCA2 is different from BRCA1, that is different from ATM, different from CDK12, different from uh, CHECK2, PULP51, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's one part of the story. The other part of the story is the germline, right? It, it, there's also data suggesting that actually the powered value, the predictive value of germline is different from the predictive value of somatic alterations. And so just to say that, you know, is anything else that works? And we see this story repeating itself in oncology when we prove um, activity of molecules and therapies in advanced settings, usually refractory settings. And when they're active, we actually try and move them early on in the course of the disease. We are seeing that with many therapies. Uh, lutetium PSMA is an example, and I believe PARP inhibitors are, is another example. And so just a reminder that of some of the, um, of the trials, a lot of these trials are actually ongoing. We're going to have more data about, of course, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to I'm not going to mention propel in magnitude because the good Dr. Dreiser is going to do that in a couple of seconds. Thank you. All right. So as Dr. Barada, you know, teed us up is that um, combo studies, right? I mean, the, the randomized, the original trial, the randomized phase two that led to propel was a provocative randomized phase two trial that showed Abby and Olaparib improved RPFS had some uh, worrisome toxicities, but it was very provocative in terms of the data. That led to Propel, and Propel and Magnitude were presented, and these other trials are in the hopper. We're going to see them. Um, many of you who are in, um, in the audience were certainly in the audience uh, for these two studies. Just briefly, we don't have time to recapitulate the data. Propel was an unselected patient population randomized between Abby and Olaparib versus Abiraterone. Again, unselected patient population, and you see, you know, the very impressive median RPFS here um, and the curve. And magnitude was a different trial. Uh, it was both a selected population for DDR mutations, both BRCA and a range of others, 
as well as an unselected group. Um, the unselected group, um, based on early stopping rules, the study was closed early by the IDMC because there was no benefit in unselected patients, but in selected patients with DDR mutations, there was a significant RPFS. Both trials are immature for overall survival. Um, for those of you that were here in the audience, uh, this generated a fair amount of uh, um, back and forth by uh, the, the folks who presented, some of the questions that were asked, all in good fun, no doubt, right, because they're all good friends. Um, but I, I think what it highlighted was is that this is an intriguing issue, and these, it, for my take, these trials are provocative, not definitive, um, because we don't have overall survival. And uh, there are, from both these trials, at least conflicting data in the unselected patient population. One was sort of a negative trial, and you could, you know, Dr. Hagana did an elegant job of talking about the statistical issues, et cetera, but it was a negative trial and a positive trial. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna first ask Dr. Barada for his thoughts on both these trials at a high level. We don't, again, we don't have time to recapitulate uh, the discussions, and I'm going to ask Dr. Beer for his thoughts. Right. I appreciate it. I'll keep it short. Um, so two, two thoughts. I, I love the presentation. I actually you know, uh, love the fact that one was presented after the other because we can talk about it and in, in provide context. I, I was going to say you know, that, first of all, magnitude is very helpful because the thought that we all have is actually we need a target to use a target therapy, right? And in the PARP inhibition story, you know, we do expect to see an homology recombination efficient effect so that a PARP inhibitor will work. Right? And so far, um, we, we need that. Right? So I think I would argue that we need to be proven wrong to start, to start forgetting that concept and start using it at all. And Propel is an honest attempt to do that, uh, but I think we're not there yet. So in summary, I do believe that magnitude is almost, as mentioned, it was two trials in one. So it does provide scientifically exactly what we thought we would see. I don't think we got surprised. Um, if anything, you know, it's reassuring what we saw. Whereas Propel tried to do something else, perhaps challenge the concept that I mentioned. Um, but I, I do believe we need to be proven that actually, you know, in the absence of uh, a marker, in this case, uh, a multiple combination deficiency, you know, the combination does really work. I don't think we can um, fully state that 100% for now, knowing all the challenges that were mentioned yesterday. And, you know, we can talk more about it. But those are kind of, I guess, my two comments about these data. Dr. Beer, what are your thoughts? Well, I think, I think the thing what? that's becoming clear from these studies is that in the biomarker-selected patients, these drugs are moving up. These were studies with abiraterone as initial uh, next-generation hormonal therapy. That is earlier than the current indications, which for olaparib are after one line of next-generation hormone therapy, and for rucaparib, it's after an NHT and a taxin. So this is moving it earlier, and that, that's encouraging. I think the, you know, the biomarker negative subset of, of Propel is really puzzling, and I, I think Tia did a nice job of discussing it, but I, I would add that I, I find that result puzzling uh, you know, in the context of magnitude evidence pointing in the other direction, but also multiple prior studies, like, for example, Profound, which was biomarker only, but looked at cohort A and cohort B, with cohort B being the non-ideal uh, mutations, if you will, not BRCA1, BRCA2, not ATM. And, and in that subgroup, we really didn't see much. So, so now we have a situation where, you know, we, we've had a consistent set of studies that have shown that in BRCA1 and BRCA2, these drugs are active and important. In ATM, probably less so. 
And with many of these other mutations, um, not a clear signal. And now we're seeing folks without any mutations having a positive signal. I, I'm, I don't quite understand that. And we're gonna need to see these data mature. We're gonna need to see the survival data and a lot more thought and discussion about what that implies. I think that the case for biomarker-driven precision medicine is clear. The case for broad use of uh, PARP inhibitors in all, all patients, regardless of biomarker status, I think remains to be clarified. Thanks. You know, there's one other point um, to briefly make. The uh, We didn't see, obviously, the entire data set that we published, but uh, Propel allowed uh, up to a year of enzalutamide use, apparently, right, because that was allowed. We didn't see any data about the percentage of patients who received it, right? There was a, there was a remark that Dr. Saad made, which I thought was actually, it was important, because the issue is, if you have had, if you have intensification, if you received an ARI, and now you've progressed, um, the context in both of these trials were basically designed when intensification was not being used. So first-line MCRPC, you haven't seen Abirenza. What we don't know is whether or not, for example, in Propel, the patients who got enzalutamide, that the activity of Abi and Olaparib is the same in patients who've not seen it. So those are, I mean, we're gonna to need to see what percentage of patients received there. But Dr. Saad made a point to say that well, we, you know, and we've shown several slides tonight about the underutilization of intensification in the United States, and there's probably similar data in, uh, in Europe. So what he pointed out was there are a lot of patients who aren't being treated essentially appropriately that would be candidates for this approach. So it's, um, it's an interesting argument and dichotomy, but uh, again, I would agree with my colleagues. I think um, we need more data here before we sort of routinely approach this, but I do think that, as Dr. Veer pointed out, you know, if you are a BRCA2 patient and you've not received an ARI, this data is very compelling, right, to suggest Great. that you should be receiving Olaparib and Abiraterone. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's move along just a little bit here. Uh, again, some additional uh, information about genomics and genetic testing. Um, I think it's also pretty clear that even though genomic testing in prostate cancer is on ASCO, AUA, NCCN guidelines, it doesn't happen particularly often. Uh, I'm going to ask my two colleagues what their clinical practice is. My practice is that patients with high-risk locally advanced disease or any type of initial hormone-sensitive metastatic disease, they all get germline testing. I use somatic testing later as MCRPC develops, but germline testing is a baseline for our practice. Dr. Beer, what happens up in Portland? Yeah, that, that's our goal as well, and, and recently we had um... Dr. Sasha Sokolova joined us from the University of Washington, and she uh, trained with Heather Chang and is developing a dedicated uh, genomic clinic in prostate cancer, so we're excited to have her with us in building that program. Now, does every single patient actually get it? I hope so, but, you know, it is, it is, there's occasionally logistical issues in implementation, but our goal is without a doubt what you've described. Dr. Barato. Yeah, just to keep it short, yeah, we're lucky enough to actually have someone dedicated to genetics within our clinics. So we're, we're, you know, uh, really proud to say that. So actually, I, I, I can say 99 to 99.9% .9 of our patients do get germline. Um, you know, we do discuss in the high risk. I have to say, you know, we do 100 for metastatic is 99.9% .9 germline. Uh, recurrent disease, high proportion of patients, we have a, a strong recommendation to do the high risk. And then somatic. 
uh, is close to that uh, in the advanced setting. My only, uh, you know, kind of be careful with that statement about somatic is because, uh, you know, when I have tissue, we actually end up doing uh, tissue-based uh, NGS. When we don't have tissue right. and and patient is already on hormones, then the value of liquobiopsy drops significantly. In that, those are the cases where we don't have somatic data before they develop CRPC. Very good. Thank you. All right, let's uh, press on here. Um, just a brief mention, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline uh, in the context, you know, prostate cancer is a unique disease in that if you look at the approved agents that we have, we have AR-targeted therapies, we have radiopharmaceuticals, we have immunotherapy with CYP-T, we have a range of different therapies. Uh, as you all know, the um, utility of immune checkpoint outside of the MSI high setting has been, well, disappointing would be a soft word. It's been really underwhelming. So this data was provocative. This is work uh, that looked uh, by, led by the good Dr. Agarwal at the University uh, at the Huntsman, uh, combining cabozantinib, a drug that has been tested in advanced prostate cancer, uh, with some, you know, interesting activity, but not enough to move the needle, as well as atezolizumab. And again, immune checkpoint as a single agent is really not, act, not particularly active. And there was a this was a study doing in measurable disease only patients. So this was patients, you had to have soft tissue measurable by resist to get on. And you see the waterfall plot. And um, you know, this, is, uh, this was provocative data and that has led to this particular trial which is ongoing, again, using a pretty conventional control arm similar to vision and a lot of other trials about the alternative ARI. So we await this data. This would be an example, potentially, if this plays out, of the potential role to further you know, modulate uh, immune therapy in a disease that's been somewhat recalcitrant. All right, so let's go back to Mr. T, 71-year-old guy, I remember, uh, nine years ago, had a Gleason 8, um, got curative intent therapy, never stopped his ADT. Uh, doesn't really know why, uh, which is, of course, not uncommon. Sometimes you just don't know why. It's just easier to do it. Um, and now he is castrate. He's got the anemia. He's got a shortening PSA doubling time. He's got a BRCA2 mutation. And again, reasons beyond your control, he has a PET CT that shows disease. So uh, we'll start with Dr. Barada. What's, uh, you know, how, how are you approaching this gentleman at this point with MCRPC? Right, so of course staging is important. Right now we know he has CRPC. We also know something very important. He had a germline BRCA2, which might have implications for future. Um, I would like to know the extent of the disease, if any, right? To know if he's met yeah, so that, uh, just, just to remind us, the PSMA PET showed, uh, you know, multiple, well, three or four bone mats and some soft tissue nodal metastasis. Oh, gotcha. Okay, got it. So, so that's the result. Okay, yeah. so in that scenario, right, I, I do think that, you know, likely going to be offered NHT, right, in that setting. And, you know, the approval right now is probably Enza, Abby, you know. So you came home for the meeting. Right. Is this, right. the guy, is this the guy you're going to do a lap or a babby? Right. I do, I do expect, I, I do think that, although I don't think he's incorrect, but I would argue that I do have level one data with a sequence of, you know, abirenza followed by laparab. In this case, I'm going, I know it's going to work and I know it makes them live longer. And so I try to be data driven as much as possible. I don't think propelled magnitude are ready for prime time just yet. And so, but I don't think it's wrong to consider a combo, but I would use survival data uh, to do a sequence. Dr. Beer, your thoughts? Well, you know, I, I think if there is a patient where you'd try it, this would be it. Um, it's a germline BRCA2, so that's very 
likely biologically significant. I, I, I tend to be a, a, a bit conservative, but adopting new strategies, I think I'd come down similar to Dr. Barada and uh, start the patient on NHT therapy and, and plan on a PARP inhibitor being next. We don't know yet whether sequential use is going to yield similar results in terms of overall survival. This is RPFS data only. But, you know, I, I think one could make a case for two-drug therapy. If, if one wanted to be rational and aggressive, this is the one setting where uh, one could consider two-drug therapy with these new data. So, uh, what would you do, Dr. Dreiser? What would I do? Well, I, I kind of would side with Dr. Barada. I'm not, you know, let me just step back for a second. One of the things that I was impressed with by Propel in a good way, uh, despite my general skepticism of things, that's what happens when you get old, you get cranky about stuff like that. But the toxicity profile was not as worrisome, at least in this report, as the original randomized phase two. Now, that said, We've all used PARPs in prostate cancer. We all know PARPs are not easy drugs to give to patients with advanced prostate cancer. We just know this because they kind of, you know, they remind me of TKIs and kidney cancer. They kind of grind you into the ground over time. So I'm still a little worried um, when you get into the real world, right? I mean, we all recognize that patients that were on Propel are selected because they went on clinical trials, and we all get this. And when you get out in the real world, uh, but using a PARP earlier, I mean, the danger of using, of waiting with PARPs is, especially in a BRCA2 mutation germline, is they really should, they need to get this therapy because this is a targeted agent and he's best likely to, to sort of tolerate it. So I guess I would be a little reluctant to um, try to pile on at this point. I would treat him with, uh, a next, you know, with an ARI and then my next therapy would be... Uh, Olaparib. Yeah, just to remind us that uh, it takes a village to take care of prostate cancer, right? You know, we talk about, uh, you know, all of us work at academic centers. We have uh, important relationships with our urology colleagues, our radon colleagues, and a whole range of the team that helps take care of this patient. You know, we've heard from the Prostate uh, Education Council about the need for, you know, information, etc. So, um, again, Dr. Beer, can you forego a biopsy of a strongly positive PSMA PET lesion? Is it that good that as an initial presentation, remember that, that patient that I said had one lesion that really had two? Let's say he only had one, right? That's his yeah. first evidence of metastatic disease. Is that good enough to make a treatment decision? You know, I think we're still learning about that, but one of the... Um one of the early uh, studies with the F18 compound looked at uh, correct localization rate, and I forget if it was the Osprey study. I, the names escaped me, but they used a, a, a combined uh, standard of truth of either pathologic confirmation or um, response to lesion-directed radiation. And um, with that, with that standard, uh, the, the scans identified lesions accurately more than 80% of the time was between 80 and 90%. So I, I think perhaps you can, but I'm, I'm still in a, in a learning curve on this. Remember, these, these uh, imaging modalities are really just entering the market here. All right, so let me ask you, uh, at OHSU, which, not investigational, which of the PSMA 
PET CT assays are you using in your shop? Is it the gallium or the fluoride? Right now, well, we have both, uh, but most of the scans are the fluoride uh, scans. Right. At Tulane? We get gallium for a while, and now uh, fluorum is also an option, yeah. We actually do have both. All right. So, um, can I just highlight yeah, the, the importance of yeah. the biopsy? So, yeah. so uh, you know, I, I, I think we can, yeah, we can skip a biopsy, right, to confirm that. However, I was just going to, you know, bring it up that the, the benefit of the advantage of a biopsy, it, it goes beyond just the fact that to prove it's prostate cancer, right? There's a value to that. We actually, have, part of that was a discussion yesterday, where, whether or not liquid biopsy does miss sometimes DNA repair defects. I think it's important. Uh, for a couple of reasons, you know, to, to have a tissue confirmation, you know, uh, information about histology, information about molecular profiling that helps us to think ahead and actually plan next steps, you know, and, and so that's important. So what's that the, said, so yeah, but this was a bone lesion, right? right so what's the, said, yield? The, what's the yield? That's right. This? With that said, we got to be careful with the decalcification. We got to be careful with, with the lesion only in the bone. So that would be my reluctance. But, you know, if, if it's feasible, um, and especially outside the bone, um, you know, having confirmation of metastatic disease with tissue, when feasible, um, is something to consider. So back to the gallium and fluoride. Uh, Dr. Beer, what's your best guess? Um, is, is any of this going to shake out, or is it going to be whatever works best in your shop? I mean, do you think that, from, you know, again, we're not experts, but, you know, we clearly have some exposure to this. Do you think the differences in gallium and fluoride-based assays are going to move the needle enough that you choose one versus the other? Or it's basically logistics and cost because the, the tests are basically, the assay results will be so similar. I think it's the latter. Um, we, we have the benefit of um, really having a wonderful nuclear medicine group, and we work very closely with them. So we've actually had these discussions amongst ourselves with uh, our nuclear medicine colleagues. And, you know, the view is that the F-18 currently has somewhat higher resolution images, but in terms of actual lesion detection capacity, they're really very, very similar. And it's been the view of, of our folks, and I have every confidence in their judgment that, you know, clinically the, the two are uh, largely uh, interchangeable. Dr. Barada? Yeah, I know I agree. I'm gonna, I think it's going to be a matter of access, to be honest. I have the feeling that the florum will, is at an advantage. Yeah, just the point. I mean, we actually don't have both because uh, at the University of Virginia, because of our location, gallium has a shorter half-life, so the fluoride um, molecule has a longer half-life. So logistically, for our nuclear medicine group, they work, they're going to work with the fluoride assay until gallium becomes so ubiquitous there's no issue there. So. Uh, I think this is an evolving construct. There are going to be other PSMA um, assays available, and I think it will become a commercial decision. All right, let me ask you another question here. Um, so um, here's a question that I can take a crack at. Does the AE profile of caboatizo and MCRPC mimic its, I'm going to assume, the toxicity profile and other tumor types? So uh, I was involved in these studies and treated patients with both uh, urothelial as well as kidney cancer. And the answer is, yeah, for the most part, the toxicity, uh, I, I, first of all, I must tell you, I was very skeptical to begin with. I mean, I was involved with, with CABO and prostate cancer. Um, now, it was dosed at 60. This, this study dosed at 40. Hard to give humans CABO at 60 um, and have them sort of, you know, walk around. Some patients got just completely pile-driven into the ground, but I also had two patients who were on the drug for this combo for two years. So it was actually, the toxicity was relatively, uh, 
surprising, and it was not disease-specific. Um, so would you, this is for Dr. Barada, would you do somatic testing right at the time of initial diagnosis or wait until patients develop resistance to perhaps first or second-line treatment, somatic testing? Somatic, yeah. So if I have tissue available, so I do both for research purposes, I should say that. There's no cost to patients, so we have actually are fortunate enough saying that, and I don't want to run away from the question. If I have tissue available, I do. And the reason why I do, because, uh, you know, I'll do germline and somatic. So I do somatic in that setting, the hormone-sensitive space. And the reason for that, for that, because I plan ahead, right? Not only trials that I might have available later on, but also I'm thinking precision medicine. Well, it's going to be a role for that, right? Knowing they might not be 100% right when time comes, because because I'm going to expose this patient to a number of different therapies, and there's always some tumor, uh, cl you know, clonal heterogeneity. But saying that, I try to do that. With leukobiopsy, it's a little bit different. You know, at the time, there's a couple of challenges with leukobiopsy, me being minimally invasive, which is a good thing. But, you know, you, you really need to have tumor circulating uh, 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 DNA to detect. And so my experience has been in the early setting, at a time of M-hormone-sensitive disease, if, you know, as long as you start them on something, you know, uh, especially, um, you know, LHRH, if not CASDEX, whatever you want to do, uh, a few weeks later, uh, the, the ability to detect ctDNA drops significantly. So in that scenario, uh, we then do it at time of progression to CRPC. Dr. Beer, your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think we still don't have enough data on the evolution of the genomics of prostate cancer as it advances. But yeah, you know, I, we tend to get the tissue analysis um, at the CRPC uh, stage. And you know, we will even target specific lesions that are, you know, if a patient develops new liver lesions, for example, we will be quite interested in the biology of those lesions and we'll want to biopsy them at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so our, our bias is towards analysis closer to when you'd use the data for somatic mutations. Germline, of course, we would go right from the beginning. So um, this is a question that I think, you know, it's an interesting question. So Dr. Beer, um, how do you best define a DDR-positive patient? Who, what is that? What's that definition to you clinically at this point? And um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to assume the question is being asked about you know, as it, from a therapeutic perspective, what does that patient look like today? You know, let, let's talk about monotherapy with PARP based on approved uh, therapy. Yeah, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to understand that question as looking at the different um, mutations and, and talking about the differences between them as opposed to um, technical questions about different assays. Um, but you, so, so if that's the question, then I, I think for me, um, BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, PAL-B2, maybe RAD51 mutated patients are therapeutically actionable. I've been really disappointed in ATM. It's uh, second most common, second or third most common mutation, and the response rate consistently is pretty darn low. And you, know, you and I are old enough, Dr. Dreiser, to remember that you can get a 10% response rate with oral etoposide or oral cytoxin in prostate cancer. And so getting a <laughs> or prednisone. <laughs> right. or or prednisone. prednisone. So getting a 10% response rate with a, an expensive new targeted drug uh, because you have an ATM mutation is just not very compelling from my perspective. So, so I, I think we need to learn a lot more about these other mutations and, and hopefully we'll develop strategies that are more effective. But I really focus on BRCA 
LB2 and RAD51. So, so I agree with Dr. Beer. I should just add one or two comments to that. Um, it does help me regardless, and I was going to say why, right? So yes, we now know more, and we know, you know, we know what to predict, right? There's really, it's because the, the thought process is we don't save the best therapies for later, and, and so we're trying to predict what's going to be the outcome of offering a PARP inhibitor. And I think what we're all saying is if we have a patient in the setting for a PARP inhibitor, in this case it would be post-abiorans in the MCRPC space, right? There's a first approval, operate, for example. If I have a bracket 2 patient, I think most of us will offer Olaparib. If we have a check 2, for instance, we probably, maybe not. But also that will depend if the patient is interested in chemotherapy or not, and the patient is symptomatic or not. What's the room for us to control the disease? And so the reason why I say that, because I, I like to bring up the, the data from Anaparicio, Paul Korn et al., right, with platin-based carbocabazine. The reason I bring that up, not because of the aggressive variant piece of the P53, RB1, P10, but also because it's an association with that aggressive variant prostate cancer, actually with DNA repair defects. So there's actually a lot of times I've done instead of a PARP when I think there's a lower chance of success, perhaps ATM is a good example, or check 12, or check, uh, or check 12. What I'm going to do, or CDK12, excuse me, what I can do is actually consider bringing a platinum in addition to hexane-based chemo. So I think it's, the discussion goes beyond the PARP inhibition, and it does allow us to think um, you know, about what's going to happen in terms of sequencing therapies and what therapies to choose. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Prostate Conditions Education Council. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash GZF 860. This educational activity is supported by medical education grants from Astellas and Pfizer Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.